Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with real doctors versus robot doctors. Which one is better? Could artificial intelligence soon start to replace the services of real doctors. Now check this out. Brand new study, Journal of American Medicine. It compared medical advice handed out by ChatGPT to the advice given out by real live human doctors. 80% of the patients preferred the (laughs) RoboDoc. They preferred that. They preferred the chat bot to the real doc. Got Dr. Kevin McLeod standing by. Have a listen to Chris Winfield here. He's the founder of Understanding AI. Have a listen. They like the bedside manner of the AI doctor. You know, in this case, it was just ChatGPT better than the actual doctors themselves. And they actually felt more comfortable with those answers. What does that say about doctors in bedside manner? uh, What everyone says about doctors in bedside manner. (laughs) When's the last time you went to the hospital? (laughs) Like, it's, uh, you know, they're overworked. You know, the main thing that I hear from doctors, people in the medical community, is about being overworked. And you feel that when you're, you know, with a lot of doctors, unfortunately. All right, let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital. Very pleased to welcome him back. Kevin, thanks for coming on today. Mike, anytime. I, I think animal control officer is pretty safe from being replaced by, by AI, but um, <laughs> medicine, maybe yeah. not so much. Because <laughs> yeah, if we have robots running around and controlling animals, like, we are in some crazy future I don't want to be in. <laughs> oh, I'd rather call the real the real deal if I've got a grizzly in the backyard. But, so, but let's talk about this AI, AI doctors here now. This is a really interesting study, got a lot of attention, that 80% of the patients in this study actually preferred the advice generated by an artificial intelligence program versus the real thing, real doctors. Are you, what do you, are, as a doctor yourself, like, are you worried about that? Are you worried about that? Are you worried about losing your job? I'm not. I, if anything, have far too much work. But you can see how it would complement things, right? Because, you know, if I'm a patient and I've got some questions, like even just a few months ago, I might have typed that into Google, but then I still have to fish through all this information on Google. And, you know, with ChatGPT, if, if you haven't tried it out, I really encourage you to, to try it out, anybody out there, because you'll, you know, you hear us talking about AI on the radio and news and all this stuff, but until you really try it for yourself, I, I think it's, um, it's hard to understand it. Um, but it, it's, it's pretty, pretty good at answering things, right? Yeah. I, when I first tried it, um, sat down with the kids and said, we should just see what this thing's all about, because they knew so much more about it than me. And I just typed in, I saw a bald eagle today. And, you know, I had this conversation with this 
chatbot, essentially, that was very sophisticated. You know, I figured out I was in the Pacific Northwest and it taught me a bit about bald eagles. I had this back and forth conversation. And at the end of this 15 minutes, I thought I've learned a bunch about bald eagles, but I felt like I was talking to a real person. Yeah. Um, and it's and similar with this study, right? Like they, they basically took medical questions that patients had, had put up and they had, you know, a real doctor answer the question or they had the, the chat bot answer the question. Well, the chat bot was right more often than the doctor. It provided a longer sort of more empathic um, answer. But, but, you know, the biggest thing is that the patient sort of felt more cared for or felt more empathy from the AI than the actual human doctor. Yeah, and we heard that reflected in the clip we listened to there about the bedside manner. It seems that the patients in this study thought that the artificial intelligence doctor was a little bit more sensitive, uh, caring, patient when in answering questions. So, and and you heard you heard the analysts there say, well, real doctors right now, if you go to the hospital, they're stressed out, they're overworked. We've talked a lot about that in the past. I mean, that's true, right? You guys are under a lot of strain. Well, that, I mean, that's part of the problem, right? Like it's everything is so rushed, and I think I've said this to you before. You know, if if I have more patients coming through the door because they have nowhere else to go, I really only have two options, right? I either say no to them and turf them to the curb where they can't find care somewhere else, or I see them, but I rush everybody more. I mean, there isn't, there isn't really a third option. Um, you know, so, so care becomes shorter and, and that's where AI may over time take on some of that, right? Like think of something like paperwork. So, you know, a sick note, I mean, it, it, it takes a bunch of time, but AI can generate that. Think of like a long disability form for Canada Pension Plan. Any patients out there who've had to fill those out with their doctor, AI would fill that out and actually probably do a better job than the doctor. Well, then you actually have this question, okay, well, the patient who's not using AI to get their government form filled out, maybe is at a disadvantage, right? So AI is, is going to really become... A necessity, and um, I, I've used it actually with some patients. You know, a lung condition called sarcoidosis. We don't really understand it in medicine, but you, know, you get this inflammation in your lungs. And I can say to Chat GBT, I've got this patient who has some scientific knowledge, and this is how I typed it, but not a lot. Can you give me a five-paragraph summary on sarcoidosis? and how we're going to treat it in him. And it right. prints out this beautiful summary, and you know, I'm very careful, I'm just gonna read through it, make sure it's accurate, but that actually provides the patient a lot of information custom tailored to them. Um, you know, so anybody who thinks this is just a fad, this is really gonna change things. Yeah, no, it's, it's already being used as you described there. And I guess the interesting thing people are wondering is how, how far will it evolve? Like how powerful will it get? How many services could it begin to perform? So let me have a, let me play something here for you, Kevin. So this is Dr. Burinder Narang, who is a medical contributor to Global News, and he was asked about this study: Will artificial intelligence programs start to replace doctors? Have a listen to what he, his thoughts here, then I'll uh, get your thoughts. Remote monitoring of patients, we're already seeing that there's work in uh, monitoring patient sugars and, and automatically figuring out the right amount of insulin that they should get if they have, need insulin for their diabetes. Um, virtual assistance, helping with education. Maybe one day it can help us in like the diagnostic process. We're not there yet, though. Yeah, the diagnostic process. I mean, you know, people are not going to stop going to the hospital. They're not going to stop going to the doctor's office to see a professional like yourself, right? I don't think so, but they're they're going to come to that professional with 
a much more informed sort of set of questions, right? So instead of coming in saying, look, I've seen a bunch of other doctors and I've got this abdominal pain, they keep telling me it's IBS, what else could it be? They might come in and say, you know, I don't think I've had these three tests. I think I actually might have this condition. You know, I've had this conversation with an online bot that's actually made some actually very good suggestions, you know, and, and so I, I think it's going to hopefully put doctors, you know, on their toes a, a lot more and, and really have to adapt to this. You know, I, I've been doing this a lot of years. When, when I went through med school, we didn't have a lot of online resource. I remember my, my second year of university, I had to decide if I wanted to sign up for this new silly thing called email, right? So, <laughs> you know, the world's changed a lot. Google wasn't around then. And, and I still, you know, would see patients and then go back to textbooks and look through textbooks. I haven't opened the textbook sitting in my attic for 20 years, right? Yeah. And, and so it, it, it is changing. And, and I think it's important, not just for medicine, but everything. I mean, this is going to change the nature of work. Like, you know, if you look at some of the photographs that, that this can develop um, and design work it does, I mean, it hugely changes how people are going to be employed in, in design. Think about journalism. You yeah. know, do you want a chatbot writing a story like oh, it's Sunday night, the deadline's coming, I'll just get this thing to do it. And, and it, it, um, it really, I think, is going to fundamentally change our society for good or bad. I mean, that's to be determined. Okay. Okay. I love having you on here because we always get a great perspective from the front lines of the system right now. And what would you say... I think one of the reasons that maybe people were responding positively to the AI in this study was that they they get a sense that they're being rushed by doctors if they go to a hospital or a doctor's office. The doctors are stressed out. The facilities are short-staffed. And we know that's that's actually happening. How would you describe like the current situation in the system right now, just in terms of the stress that frontline professionals are feeling and and whether we're adequately staffed? Uh, I mean, the short answer, Mike, we're not, right? I mean, it's, it is so busy. And, you know, even though government's doing their best right across the country, it doesn't matter if it's a left or right leaning government, the problem's the same right across the country. Um, they're, they're trying to change policies and trying to do their best to get more people, but it's it's not really working. Um, you know, and, and so it is so short-staffed. Like, I, I know the, the North Shore really well. That's where I've worked for, for 18 years. Um, you know, housing is so expensive. Well, how, how are you going to attract nurses to work in our emergency department when they get $40 an hour and there's no way that they can afford a house here? They're, they're going to take a job in Squamish where they live or Coquitlam where they live, right? So yeah. so the, the staffing problem is becoming more and more acute. And the other thing that doesn't get talked a lot about, and, you know, some of my colleagues won't like me saying this, but... But, you know, when, when cost of living goes up and overhead costs go up, well, then some doctors say, you know what, screw it. I can't see these complicated patients. I'm going to see and do Botox, right? And I'm going to do that every Thursday, and that's going to let me take Fridays off and have a better quality of life. And, you know, so we we see people morphing into the things that are remunerated better. And, and then more and more people are, are left without a, a primary care doc. You know, I know right. they've just made a bunch of changes to the, the way family doctors are paid. And, and there's some positive things about that. But this isn't going to have this huge impact in the next few years, maybe over the next 10 years. But in the interim, I mean, it's really hard for patients to get care. Um, they're just I don't think anybody who hasn't had to use the system really understands 
how challenging it is. You know, you, you have a kid who needs psychiatric care. Mm. It's next to impossible to, to get that to happen, right? Um, and because the doctors right. are so burnt out, they, they aren't, you know, there isn't that same kind of, they want to help, but they're so tired. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's just harder to, to get them activated to, to help. Kevin, it's always great to have you on here and get your perspective. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Mike, anytime. And this actually wasn't me. This was all done with chat GB keys. Oh, this is oh, this is the robot doctor I'm speaking there to. There you go. Exactly. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's talk about the situation with WestJet pilots now. Hundreds of WestJet pilots yesterday staged an information picket outside of airports, including YVR. They want to bring attention to their stalled contract talks. Uh, they believe they are poorly paid. There's a high turnover rate of the staff there at WestJet. Yeah, they want an improved deal here with their employer. Got Captain Jason Roberts standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to some WestJet pilots talking about their situation here. Let's listen. We are ready to take legal strike action or be locked out at that point, but we are still hoping to reach a deal. The union says it's losing pilots who are taking better paying jobs at other airlines, particularly in the U.S. They want more money, job security and better scheduling. We are some of the lowest paid in North America, if not the world. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Captain Jason Robert. Jason is Secretary Treasurer of the WestJet Pilot Group at the Airline Pilots Association. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on today. Uh, hey, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. The information pickets that the pilot stage yesterday got a lot of attention. It was a national story across Canada. Can, can you give me a, an update on what's the status right now? Are you guys talking to your employers? You're trying to get a deal, right? Yeah, we're, we're definitely working on it. Um, our, we have our negotiators available 24-7. So uh, negotiating is, is still ongoing. Uh, but what we're running up against is that uh, management still fails to understand today's labor market conditions, which is leading to a mass exodus of our pilots in search of better work opportunities. Uh, on average, a WestJet pilot leaves our airline every 18 hours, mostly to fly for our competitors. And, and that's why we need a better contract. Okay, let's have a listen to one of your colleagues here. This is Captain Bernard Lewell from the Airline Pilots Association. Here he is yesterday talking at one of the picket lines. Let's listen. I started here 18 years ago. This was a place pilots wanted to come. This was a place pilots wanted to retire at. That is no longer the situation. Pilots come here for a couple of years, they get some experience, and then they go to another airline within North America. 
Jason, would you agree with him here that he said when he started there at WestJet 18 years ago, it was like a job, seemed like a job for life. Now it's like more of a turnover. Is that happening? Absolutely, Mike. Uh, I, I would definitely echo that. Uh, that's been the same experience for myself. Um, you know, I mean, it was a it was a dream job for me to pursue uh, to come fly for WestJet. But, you know, when I'm seeing so many of my colleagues leaving, you know, over 30 a month uh, are leaving to pursue uh, flying careers elsewhere, it's it's somewhat concerning. How much does a WestJet pilot make? Well, I mean, we can't. There's no point in getting into specifics, but, you know, what we're seeing is, is we're falling behind the curve from uh, our competitors. And we just need to close that gap. Okay, well, I, I think the specifics are important, though. Like, how far behind are you? Like, how, how much well, do the other I mean, guys make? How, do the other, how much do these other guys make when you, at some of these other major airlines? You say they make more. How much do they make it? How much more do they make? Well, it's, it, the gap is as wide as up to 50%. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, so what's been happening right across North America is, you know, we're watching all of our colleagues are and their employers are coming to these agreements, and you know they're they're being compensated at, at a rate that they've earned, and we just want to make sure that we're keeping up with the market. Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking. I just did a quick Google search here. It says a typical WestJet airline pilot airline pilot salary is just under a hundred thousand a year. Is that accurate uh yeah that's yeah okay. that is accurate but i mean that's you know you have to take into account that it's you know it's it, we required decades of, of training and experience to get to that pay rate right like yeah. that's not the starting that's not a starting salary by any means okay when how long have you worked there uh just over 10 years 10 years okay is this a job that like you mentioned when you started it it, it, it seemed like the job was a lot more attractive than it is right now like, is, is it difficult to get a job at, at WestJet as a pilot? Like, do you have to start off at smaller airlines and work your way up typically? Or how do you get a job there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was flying at uh, smaller companies uh, until I was, I didn't get hired at WestJet until I was 34 years old. Um, yeah. So it's definitely not the type of situation where you just come straight out of college uh, or university into into this job. Yeah. What about... um? Air Canada, what do they pay their pilots over there in comparison? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's different structures and there's there's different work rules that, that we each have. And we're, we're just trying to just to kind of close the gap and, and keep us all in the same rate. But yeah. I, I can't speak uh, to those. I don't have those numbers. But is it roughly the same? Like could people, like when people leave WestJet to take jobs elsewhere, where do they go? Do they go to Air Canada or do they go to the United States and work for a big airline there? Oh, they're going to all different sorts of uh, competitors just for better, um, I, I guess I would say for more opportunity. So, you know, I mean, Air Canada, you have your choice of flying different air, aircraft type. Um, there's other airlines that that are smaller that may have uh, better opportunities to suit that pilot. But, you know what, when we're seeing 30, 40, 50 pilots every month leaving WestJet, that's a clear indication to me that there's things that we need to fix. Wow. Speaking to Captain Jason Robert from the Airline Pilots Association, WestJet Pilots, their information picket line yesterday, could this turn into a, a real strike? What, are, what do you think are, the odds are of that right now? Like, is this, 
are you guys far apart at the bargaining table, or could this actually lead to a, an actual major walkout strike? Well, you know what? Flight disruptions are not ideal um, for any of our passengers and our pilots. That's not what our focus is. Our focus is at the negotiating table. And yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that we can come to a deal, but, you know, there are, there are uh, opportunities uh, that legal opportunities within the Canada Labour Code that we may end up having to explore. Okay, what would that include? Yeah, that's that's the thing is the the strike or the lockout. Um, if that's uh, if it ends up getting to that that point, you know, wow. that, that's not our goal. Obviously, our our goal is to have a contract to make WestJet a career destination again. Yeah. Okay. Well, this would be brutal if there was a strike. I mean, people, we've already yeah. gone through enough turmoil and hassles in the travel sector without something like absolutely something like this happening. Um, I when absolutely you, agree. Yeah, and when you talk about that turnover rate, like that's astonishing. How many WestJet pilots a month did you say are leaving? Um, yeah, it's on average it's over thirty, but you know, wow. last month it was fifty. Holy smokes, that's an incredible number. Uh, what what kind of impact does that have? Like when you guys are trying to run an airline and you're losing that many pilots, how, how does that impact things on the for scheduling and, and flights? Yeah, it does put a it, it definitely puts a strain on the system, right? Um, and and you know the airlines trying to struggling to hire more pilots, um, but it, it's you know the, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we can reach an agreement that um, that will stop that and and we'll be we'll be able to hire some great pilots. Yeah, let me play a clip here for you from your boss here and get your thoughts. So this is Alexis von Hoss. Breach. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. He von is this yep. Von Hunsbrook. Thank you. He is the CEO of WestJet, and you'll hear him describe here responding to the pilot saying that you know we want competitive wages with big airlines. Let's say in the United States. Have a listen to what he says here. Then I'll get your thoughts. This is the CEO of WestJet. Labor contracts are nat- uh, national by nature, and uh, they have to reflect uh, the. Um, labor law, they have to reflect the standards of living, social security, and the market conditions. And the United States are a very, very different country than Canada. And uh, frankly, the companies, the airlines we compete with, are not the airlines from the U.S., but they are the airlines in Canada. So that's what sets the standard. Okay. So you heard him say there, well, it's not, you don't really want to compare to the United States. Like the American pilots of the big American airlines, do they make a lot more money? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. we're, we're you know, we're we're not unrealistic either, right? We're just saying that we need to close the gap, right? So that what is happening is they're getting too much they're getting so much further away from us that our pilots are leaving. So what we need is something that uh respects what we bring to the airline so that we can keep the pilots we have and we want to help management understand and achieve their growth. Plan. That's what we want to do, but yeah. without a fair contract, it's not going to happen. What's the stress, stress and strain like on this job right now? When you're short-staffed, when you have that much turnover, the scheduling hassles—I'm sure that will create. What kind of stress would you say people are under right now on this job? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's definitely on our our pilots' minds, uh, absolutely. But you know, as as airline professionals, once the flight deck door is closed we are solely focused on operating the aircraft. So it right. doesn't affect, it's just, it's 
you know, that professional switch basically just turns right on and, and safety is always number one. So, yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. So last question for you. When, if a pilot decides to leave WestJet and you talked about like dozens of them doing that every month right now, where can they easily get another job somewhere else? Like, can you, can you go to the United States right now and, and get a job with a major airline there? Like, do they have a shortage of pilots down there and it's easy to get work? Yeah, I mean, it's it's never easy to obtain uh, a, an airline pilot job anywhere, but yeah. it it is possible. Um, and and that's what we're seeing is, is our pilots are speaking with their feet and um, mm-hmm. leaving for other airlines, even within Canada. So um, it's, it's, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Okay, I hope you guys get a deal. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, let's talk about Canada's ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets now. The Justin Trudeau government has once again outlined a plan to reduce fossil fuel consumption across Canada, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. These are very ambitious targets, a major one coming up in the year 2030. Did you know that so far Canada has had, I think by my count, about six different emission reduction targets so far? laid down by the federal government, and we've missed every single one. Not one time have we actually hit these emission reduction targets in the past. This time, though, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is saying this will be different. He has guaranteed we will hit these next targets in 2030 because the government has a very detailed plan to get there. Now, is this possible? Is it actually possible to drive down fossil fuel consumption, drive down these emission targets and greenhouse gas emissions in these constricted period of time? Got Mark Mills standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to his viral TikTok video here on this topic here. This has been viewed millions of times online. Let's have a listen here. This is Mark Mills. Wake up. You're having a dream. Here's the reality. Oil, natural gas, and coal provide 84% of all the world's energy. That's down just two percentage points from 20 years ago. And oil still powers nearly 97% of all global transportation. Contrary to headlines claiming that we're rapidly transitioning away from fossil fuels, it's just not happening. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Mark Mills, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You just heard part of his video there. Mark, thanks a lot for coming on today. That's good. I said that, huh? Well, I guess I guess I better stick by that. No, I'm just kidding. Good to be on. Thank you. Okay, okay, thank you very much for coming on. That video got a lot of attention, and we've talked a lot about climate change, greenhouse gas emission targets here on the show, and whether these targets can be met. And in Canada, we've had a whole series of these targets 
come and go, and we don't, we never yeah. seem to meet them. Why do you say, you said in that video there that people should wake up, that, that people are living yeah. a dream if they think that we can meet these targets? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, and you're not alone uh, in my homeland, Canada, uh, having these dreams from government and regulatory bodies. So you're in, you're in uh, good company, so to speak, United States, a lot of states, a lot of, a lot of European nations. It, look, it is a dream because uh, governments can set in place mandates, but they based on things that have no connection to reality, because that's what governments can do. And they do it all the time, especially with regards to energy. This is a mandate that's equivalent of requiring, and I'm only slightly exaggerating, that everyone should take a trip to the moon by the year 2030. Everyone, not some people, but everybody. Now, you know, you could, we can, we know, we know how to get to the moon. It's not impossible. Uh, it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of technology and energy. So, but it'd be silly to mandate that. The, ma- the requirement to produce, uh, mine and manufacture the minerals pro- and the processes to refine the minerals to manufacture the scale of batteries and mo- imagined in this green energy transition is unprecedented in human history. I mean, it's just just numbers. This has nothing to do with aspirations. We're talking about a 400% to a 4,000 to 8,000% increase in mining of various metals and minerals over the next decade to manufacture the quantity of batteries to try and replace conventional vehicles, for example. There's just no precedent in history for that kind of expansion. And we've already spent, we we know a lot about this. We've spent literally trillions of dollars in the last two decades to try to avoid using hydrocarbons. As I said in that video, we've reduced global dependency by two percentage points. And that dependency didn't eliminate growth. It just meant that share went down a little bit. The absolute quantity of hydrocarbons consumed in the world increased in the last 20 years by an amount equivalent to adding six Saudi Arabia's worth of oil demand. So this, those are just facts that people want to ignore and then say things that feel aspirational. But in yeah. fact, at some fundamental level, are kind of silly. Okay. When you take a look at the, the trends that you've outlined, some of the trends there globally for fossil fuel consumption, what about, what about the renewables that we place so much hope in? Wind, solar, tidal. Why can we not get those going? Why can those not just be ramped up dramatically? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are being wrapped up and wrapped up pretty dramatically. I mean, we've had an astonishing increase in the share of uh, energy produced by wind and solar in the last decade or 20 years of, of spending. Uh, so that's, of course, they can be ramped up. But again, it's this yeah. is uh, the same minerals and metals that are needed to make electric vehicles are needed to make wind, wind turbines and solar arrays. So the increased quantity of minerals needed to produce a unit of energy from windmills and solar panels to produce the same amount of energy we have to increase the quantity of metals and minerals mined by over a thousand percent to produce the same amount of energy to build the machines to produce the energy. So instead of, you know, drilling for oil and gas and mining coal, we're going to be mining copper and aluminum and molybdenum and zinc and graphite and cobalt, a whole a whole suite of metals. But yeah. the increased quantities are astonishing. And this is an international energy data. It's not me making numbers up. These are just mining facts. So it's good for Canada in the sense, I mean, the mining boom is going to be huge if we actually try to do this. So the the truth is, as we are here today with this massive increase of, quote, exponential growth in in wind and solar, today globally, only three and a half percent of world energy comes from wind and solar combined. And the world still gets 
three times more energy from burning wood globally than from all the windmills and solar panels that we've spent trillions of dollars on. It's just a very, very big system. People are very profoundly naive about how big the challenge is. Okay. We continue to, of course, here, we see governments setting very ambitious targets. We have international organizations, primarily the United Nations, continuing to rally governments around the world for this aggressive action on greenhouse gas reduction targets. Let me play a clip here for you from the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Antonio Guterres, uh, calling for action here. Then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. Dear friends, humanity is on thin ice and that ice is melting fast. But today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. That's the Secretary General of the United Nations calling for aggressive climate change action around the world. I mean, governments are doing this, are they not, Mark? No, they are. No, the governments of the world are making uh, mandates, subsidies, and spending at at epic levels. what I'm saying has nothing to do with the motivation. I understand why people are motivated to do this and why they, sure. they claim we have to do it. What I focus on in my work is whether you can actually do it. This is right. nothing to do yeah. whether we should do it. The, the idea that we can do it is anchored in uh, aspirational engineering by PowerPoint as opposed to real-world engineering. It, it, it's not a value statement to say it can't be done and isn't being done. It's just a fact in the engineering and the geophysics of the world we live in. Yeah. And so when you when you talk about that, when you do this sort of reality check, I know you get a, a, a lot of anger from, you know, <laughs> your opponents who say that, the, that we can do this, we can switch to renewables, and we just need the political will uh, to get this going. And what do you say to that? Like, when you just take a look at, like, how much fossil fuel consumption it continues to rise where and especially in the developing world this is where i'm trying to figure out how this is possible to do can you talk a little bit about that like the trends that we're seeing right now well sure one of the trends we're seeing is the world's increasing its consumption and combustion of coal by epic levels china's adding about one new coal plant a week it's increased uh consumption of coal in the next few years the increased consumption of coal in the next few years will lead to more carbon dioxide emissions than all the rest of the world's reductions combined. So that's what's happening in the real world if we're worried about carbon dioxide. They're not changing their mind. We have a a world where billions of people, the ratio of the number of cars per person, there's roughly one car for every several hundred people. In Canada and the United States, there's almost one car per person. So that part of the world wants lots of cars, even if they were battery powered cars and they won't be. uh, It takes a lot of energy materials to build those cars. Those are the things that are happening in the real world, despite the aspirations of UN officials, Canadian and American officials. It makes no difference what the aspiration is if you can't do it. Look, the world, just copper, which you can't build solar, wind and battery and EVs without more copper. The world will need more than 200% more copper mines in the next decade. And we know for a fact that the world's copper mines and the world's copper mining companies are not, this is just a fact, they are not now investing in or planning to invest in that level of new mining. It's just not happening. All right, we're talking about Canada's greenhouse gas reduction targets with my guest, Mark Mills. We got a ton of phone calls here. Wayne in Richmond. Hi, Wayne, go ahead. 
Hi, Mike. Uh, I'm glad you had the guest on. It's about time we had somebody talking about reality here. I just came back from Turkey. Um, their um, gas pipeline in the Black Sea just came on, and they'll be exporting gas to Europe very shortly. I was in the Straits of Tehran off of uh, Egypt. Uh, there's over 100 and some odd wells there, and they're still flaring gas there. Uh, Trudeau's idea uh, is just another tax grab. He's going to tax the you-know-what out of us through 2030, and I'm sure uh, the Trudeau Foundation, his brother and sister and, and uh, mother will do con- continue to do very well by the Canadian taxpayers, but we won't. Okay, well, you just outlined, thank you for the call. Okay, Mark, you just outlined some of the gas exploration, the new pipelines that are being built around the world. What can you say about that? Because we talk a lot about trying to drive these emissions down, but man, it just seems like the consumption of fossil fuels around the world just is just not stopping. Well, ironically, I was just got back from Turkey as well, about two days ago. It was yeah. what a fascinating country. Uh, yeah, look, everywhere in the world, uh, except maybe Canada and the United States, when countries uh, make big discoveries of oil and natural gas, they're doing high fives in the in their yeah. governments and in their industries because of the sheer quantity of energy the world needs now, will need in the future. I, I am one who has said many times, and I'm not alone in this, that the future demands for energy are so enormous to help not just make people wealthy, but wealthier than they are today to live comfortable lives, that we're, we're going to need everything. We're going to need lots of windmills and solar arrays. We're going to need more oil and gas. We're probably going to need more coal. No one wants to admit that in policy circles, but that's the reality of the world we live yeah. in. Yeah. It impoverishes the citizens of Canada and the United States to make everybody pay more for energy than they used to. It was one of the great accomplishments of history is to reduce the cost of food and fuel so that it's sort of, uh, as I put it in an early book of mine with a colleague, so that energy costs and food is energy. They're in the twilight of our sort of existence. We don't think about it until their costs inflate. And then people get real unhappy. I think the politicians are, are playing with fire in this sense that the Inflation that we've been seeing that we don't like will come roaring back as these energy transition plans come into effect. What they about will make it more expensive? What about climate change, though? I mean, we're going into a baking hot weekend right here. The climate continues <laughs> to be strange. Are we supposed to? What is the answer to that? We just uh, adapt to it. Well, the short answer is yes. I mean, look, yeah. the I, I work in the real world uh, where we have to ask questions about what you can do with energy, and the answer is not much different in timeframes that are meaningful. If we, if you're in a camp that believes that we should do something about the changing climate, then you can also join with people who don't think that humans are causing it to accelerate. I mean, there's two camps here, and it's a middle ground. But everybody would agree that spending money on adaptation and resilience to nature's insults is a good use of capital. I mean, nature's been trying to kill humans for all of all of human history, uh, protecting ourselves from from natural disasters and, uh, and, and nature's storms is a good thing to do. So resilience and adaptation matter no matter what you believe about climate change. It, but it doesn't matter what you think about the science of climate. They are independent domains with the science of energy. We don't know really that much about the climate science. Yes, I know people say it's certain. It's not. We're making predictions about the future. But when it comes to energy, we know a lot about the physics of energy, and there's yeah. no new physics in energy. So the things that I write about, that others like me write about, aren't about aspirations. They aren't about uh, you know, goals. They're about the realities of what 
machines we can build. If you want different kinds of machines, you don't build yesterday's technologies like windmills, solar arrays. We put more money into research to come up with magic catalysts to make hydrogen cheap. It isn't cheap the way we're chasing it. And to come up with a lower cost nuclear power plants, which frankly are the only mm. remarkable new phenomenology. But all that takes time. Nobody wants to, to, to admit the fact this is not going to be fast or easy. If you're worried about the climate, then we should be focused on spending money on resilience and adaptation, not on things that literally won't do what people claim. Okay. All right. It's been very fascinating to talk to you today and to get that side of it and get your perspective on it. I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, keep, appreciate keep warm and keep cold, whichever, whichever is your choice. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.